Hi everybody, Liam here. Just a few quick notes before we start the show. First of all, what you're about to hear was recorded last month as part of a live online event hosted by an Oakland group called Creative Mornings. Big shout out to Daniel Wolf for organizing that and Christy Ghosh from Tiny Oak Media for recording it. Also, thanks of course to my guest who you're about to hear from, Casey Harper of the Wild Oyster Project. I was planning to release this episode shortly after that event, but before I could do that, our nation saw a historic and unprecedented uprising against police violence, and specifically the killing of black people. I want to use this platform, East Bay Yesterday, to support that struggle in whatever way I can. And so for the past few weeks, I've been totally focused on researching several police killings from the 1960s and 70s. And look, I know I'm just one guy with a podcast, and I certainly don't want to overinflate my own importance or anything like that. But I think these cases, these murders that I've been looking into, really do help contextualize what we're going through now. They illustrate a very long pattern of police abuse and the generational trauma it can cause. And they also explore the successes and defeats of past efforts to challenge police violence right here in Oakland. But these are complex stories, and I want to make sure I get everything right in terms of fact-checking and you know getting people on the record and whatnot. So that episode probably won't be coming out until mid-July. Sorry for the wait. And so in the meantime, while I'm waiting to hear back about a few things that will allow me to finish up the next phase of producing that episode. I've decided to finally release this Q&A about local oyster history. And I know, that may sound a little trivial at first glance. But the oysters of San Francisco Bay are deeply entangled with Ohlone history and struggles for clean water and healthy ecosystems, which are all topics we'll be covering in this conversation. So I hope you'll stay tuned and thanks, as always, to everyone who supports this show and makes East Bay Yesterday possible. Okay, here's my interview with Casey Harper of the Wild Oyster Project. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for uh, joining us this morning, and thank you, Daniel, for that lovely introduction. Just right off the bat, I wanted to point out that I wanted to dress for the occasion since they're so few opportunities to do that these days. So I'm wearing my shirt with crustaceans and seaweed on it in honor of the, the oyster theme of today's discussion. And uh, before we jump into the Q&A with Casey, who I'll introduce in a second, I just wanted to tell a, a really short story about uh, my personal connection with oysters. So I got married when I got married about, what was it like 11 years ago now, uh, my wedding was in the backyard of a cheese shop up in Marin County. And since it was only a couple miles from Tamales Bay, of course, we had to have oysters. It was like a pretty low budget wedding, you know, really DIY, but we decided to splurge on about 200 oysters for the guests, uh, a lot of whom were coming from out of town in Chicago, where oysters are an extremely uncommon treat. I don't think I'd had an oyster until I was, you know, in my early 20s. So we put out the oysters right after the ceremony, and they were just completely wiped out within about 10 minutes. I mean, people just descended on these oysters. All 200 were just faded, scarfed, 
And, you know, the people who ate them, which was about half the guests, loved them. I mean, you can't beat fresh oysters from, from the Point Reyes region, just exquisite. But the other half of the people who didn't eat them were just completely baffled by why people are crawling all over each other for these weird looking things that are kind of slimy and sort of look like loogies. And it's just like, what other food is so divisive? People either just love them passionately or find them completely revolting. And so, you know, in this respect and, and many others, as we're about to discuss, oysters are, are really unique. But I should add that they weren't always such a rare treat. 150 years ago, oysters were one of the most commonly eaten kinds of seafood among rich and poor alike. And not just in the Bay Area. For a while, in the late 1800s, oysters brought in more revenues than any other oceanic edible. So what happened? Why aren't oysters as prevalent as they once were? Why are they such a rare treat these days? Well, oysters have had a lot of ups and downs over the centuries, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. In a sense, even the shells themselves are a kind of historical record. Archaeologists studying the Ohlone shell mounds, and because I know that there's a lot of uh, people on this call from uh, out of town, I saw that there's people from all over the country, not just the Bay Area. I should add that the Ohlone is the name of the uh, local indigenous people here in the Bay Area, whose, whose land I'm on right now, and anyone who's in Oakland is on their land right now. But uh, the Ohlone had shell mounds that we're going to talk about a little bit more that used to ring the bay. There was hundreds of them. And archaeologists studying those shell mounds discovered that there were more oyster shells at the lower levels of the shell mounds, the lower strata. And um, that there was more clams and mussels and other kinds of shellfish above the oysters, giving some clues as to the kind of evolution of the, of the Bay's aquatic ecosystem over the millennia. Unfortunately, a lot of that history, that Shellmont history, has been lost forever because in the decades following the gold rush here in California, nearly all of those sacred Ohlone Shellmonts were destroyed. And they weren't just leveled and flattened out to make room for development. Those long buried oyster shells were still valuable. See, oyster shells can be ground up and used as an ingredient to make cement, which is a pretty important component for any developing metropolitan area. And sure enough, about 30 million tons of oyster shells were used in cement that went into paving the Bay Area's roads and bridges. And a lot of those oyster shells were taken out of those Ohlone shell mounds. And of course, it should be noted that those shell mounds also contained human remains as well. Fortunately, after many decades of an almost total absence, oysters are finally starting to make a comeback in the Bay. And one of the groups responsible for this resurgence is the Wild Oyster Project. My guest today, Casey Harper, who is the Wild Oyster Project's deputy director, can tell you more about what they do. And I'll jump into that Q&A in just a second. But first, uh, since there's a lot of people out here whose, whose names I don't recognize, I'm guessing there might be some new East Bay listeners out there, East Bay Yesterday listeners out there. So I just want to let you guys know I have about 60 back episodes of my show on, on my website that you can check out. If you're into like food history, I've done episodes about like the first Mexican restaurant in Oakland. I interviewed this woman who cooked soul food in the East Bay from the time of World War II until just a couple of years ago. Or if you're like more of a nature person, I've done episodes about uh, old growth redwoods and grizzly bears and uh, Lake Merritt. Tons of, tons of fun episodes. Did one about Bruce Lee's time living in Oakland. That's a lot of people's favorite. Anyway, you can find all those at eastbayyesterday.com. 
And uh, also, if you're into other kind of nature news, I share a lot of natural history stuff um, through my social media. There's a lot of groups like California Center for Natural History, uh, Bay Nature Magazine that are always doing natural history events about Bay Area stuff. And so I try to give them a lot of uh, shout outs and, and share their information as well. But uh, without any further ado, I'd like to welcome my guest, Casey Harper from the Wild Oyster Project. Before we start turning back the clock to talk about oyster history, Casey, maybe you can jump in now and tell us a little bit about the Wild Oyster Project. What exactly are you guys doing to help bring oysters back into the bay and, and why? Yeah, so thank you, Creative Mornings Oakland, and thank you, Liam, for putting this event on. So the Wild Oyster Project is dedicated to the restoration of San Francisco's native oyster to the bay. And when I say native oyster, I'm talking about the Olympia oyster. And you can still find this oyster in San Francisco, although a lot of people don't know about it. Um, they're really surprised to know that there is a native oyster. Um, and it's still out there, but in much reduced populations than historically were in the Bay. And they just need a little help from us. Um, the thing that oysters need the most is in San Francisco is hard substrate to attach to. Um, so we recycle oyster shells from restaurants that would normally go into landfill. We collect that and we build artificial structures, artificial oyster reefs that we then put back into the water. And then the oysters, the Olympia oysters that are in the water that are looking for the substrate, hopefully they find it. And they're like, great, now I have a place to settle and I can grow and that will help rebuild the oyster population to a self-sustaining population. So right now our focus a lot is on shell recycling. So going to restaurants and collecting that um, oyster shell because the thing that oysters want to attach the most to is other oyster shell. And unfortunately, as Liam was talking about, there isn't a lot of oyster shell in the water anymore. So we're trying to add that back into the water. And the reason why we want to restore the oyster population of San Francisco is because oysters do a lot of amazing things. We call them a foundation species or a keystone species because they have a disproportionate effect on their environment for other species that live in the same environment. They have what we call oyster superpowers. So they filter the water, they create habitat because they make these extensive beds. And then these oyster beds attenuate wave energy so they help protect our shorelines. They create habitat for other species to use. So fish and birds are attracted to the oyster beds and all the other animals that are using the oyster beds. And they also help clear the water, they're filter feeders. So that water clarification helps uh, aquatic vegetation grow. And it really is just this cascading wave of positive benefits. The more oysters you have, the better. So we're all about as many oysters as we can possibly have in the bay. Thank you for that. Um, and we will we will talk a little bit more about what you guys are doing when we get to that part of the of the timeline. But I do want to turn turn back the clock now and talk about the kind of gold rush era. As I mentioned earlier, um, oysters had been kind of declining in the bay for a while. So you know, around the 1850s, for example, there weren't a lot of oysters, native oysters left in the bay. Uh, it was mostly mussels and clams. But by you know 
a couple decades later, by say the 1870s or 1880s, there was this massive, massive oyster industry in the Bay Area. I think it was the most valuable uh, seafood product coming out of the Bay during that era. So how did we go from relatively few oysters to this thriving industry in just a couple decades? Can you take me through that process yeah. during, during the gold rush era? So the gold rush era saw this massive influx of people to the San Francisco Bay Area. And a lot of these people were coming from the East Coast, from other parts of America, and they brought their love of oysters with them. So there was definitely a high demand for an oyster market here in San Francisco. Um, and there were native oysters at the time, but they were kind of undesirable um, by the people that were coming that were used to Eastern oysters, uh, which is a different species of oyster native to the East Coast. But we kind of forget because they're not really as prevalent in the same way today, but oysters back then, as you said, were this really this working class staple where people were eating oysters every day. They were a common source of protein. They were also a good source of different vitamins and minerals. And especially in the age of the gold rush, you know, we didn't have supermarkets we didn't even have refrigeration so an oyster can keep for a few days too so that made it um really valuable source of protein because it traveled well you know if you could keep it in the shell it could travel for days so when people started coming to san francisco they wanted they wanted their oysters that they were used to and they didn't like the oysters that were here they didn't like the native oyster it was small um, apparently, it has a very strong flavor, even for an oyster. It's often described as coppery or smoky. And I guess um, people were interested in more of a bigger, milder flavored oyster. So there was just this immediate kind of like, how do we get the Eastern oysters that we like over here? And the first thing that they did was they actually started to import oysters from Washington. And it's funny because that's the same species that's native here. It's the Olympia oyster, Austria lurida, but it's a, but oysters kind of take on the environment in which they're grown. So the Olympia oysters from Washington were a little bit bigger, also had a different, more milder flavor, and it only took six days to travel by boat to bring these Olympia oysters from Washington down to San Francisco. So that was the first thing that started was this importation of Washington oysters and they would plant them in San Francisco on the mudflats here to basically to fatten them up and to keep them fresh. So you could like bring in a whole, just a whole ship of oysters and then plant them in the water here and just sell them, you know, keep selling them. But still the Olympia oyster, even the one in Washington, which was a little bit bigger, a little bit more desirable, it still takes like three to five years to get to a market size. And it only gets to about like two inches in length and the eastern oysters um, get to be about four to five inches and they grow faster. So as soon as the Transcontinental Railroad was completed in 1869, that was like a real game changer for the oyster industry. And I should add that, the, of course, the Transcontinental Railroad's terminus was right here in West Oakland. So yeah. you know, it's, it's bringing those oysters from the east coast straight here to, to the East Bay. And so were they shipping entire oysters? Like, how did that work? So initially, yes. So the, it wasn't the very first train that arrived in Oakland, but the second train had fresh Eastern oysters on it. And it was like advertised in all the newspapers, like, we got them, Eastern oysters, you can get them now. Um, but they soon discovered that it makes a lot more sense economically 
to import seed oysters rather than full grown oysters. So seed oysters are like tiny. They're like less than a, the size of a dime. So you could get a lot, you could pack in a lot more basically baby oysters in a barrel, ship them across the continent, and then plant them here and grow them out for three years till they get to market size. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I think people are used to thinking of shellfish as just, you know, you can dig uh, clams out of the beach or, you know, you can pry oyster or uh, mussels, you know, off the rocks. How, how exactly do these oyster farms work? You know, what was the infrastructure necessary to, to grow oysters in the bay, all these imported oysters? Well, that's the great thing about oysters is they really don't take much. Um, it's really about the location. There's certain parts of the bay that are more suitable for oyster growing. Like what you really need is just kind of like current action where you plant the oysters because they're gonna filter um, their food, which is algae, plankton from the water. And basically other than that, just like protection from predators. Um, so the, at the time the industry, the process was to bring these seed oysters from New York, New Jersey in barrels uh, on trains and then plant them on beds. Um, initially, there was more the Central Bay, then they moved down to the South Bay. And they would fence off the beds, like with redwood stakes, to keep out what they thought were oyster predators. Um, and then, other than that, it was just waiting for them to reach market size and then collecting them and selling them at market. There really isn't a lot to it, which is why oysters are so great. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, you, you just mentioned the predators a minute ago. Like, what are the natural predators of oysters in the bay? What are, what are trying to get there to munch those oysters? So uh, there are a few different things. There's a native stingray called the bat ray, which um, people were talking about. They could see them in Lake Merritt sometimes, which is I've so cool. I've seen them myself. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're really cool. They're native to the bay and for a long long time it was thought that they were like the number one predator of oysters and that was true for the native oyster and these eastern oysters that were planting which was why they staked the beds out one of the reasons was to keep these fat rays out because they thought they were eating all their oysters um it actually i just found out like you know like a week ago that there have been a lot of research recently that shows that Bat rays are not super interested in eating oysters. They're more interested in eating crabs. And rock crabs definitely eat oysters. So I'm just imagining all these oyster farmers back in the day like, ha I'm gonna keep you out, you dang bat rays. And now all the crabs are inside with the oysters and the bat rays can't get to the crabs. And they're like, well, great, buffet time. Yeah. Yeah. But um, so bat rays or crabs, and then also oyster drills are kind of like the number one predator for oysters right now. And that was a, an oyster drill is a type of snail, it's a whelk that is actually from the East Coast and it came in those barrels, uh, you know, by train. And that's how it was introduced to the San Francisco Bay Area. And they're really voracious. They're not that big, but they, uh, they use their tongue as like a rasp and they drill into the oyster shell and they kind of, uh, kind of like eat it from the inside out and they're they're a super big problem but other than that uh, like oyster catchers the you know the bird is literally called an oyster catcher and it's they definitely eat oysters different different bird species diving ducks you know gotcha so I know that there were 
oyster beds in places like, you know, San Leandro. And uh, well, one of the reasons why this is interesting, and, and I learned it a little while ago, was that one of the reasons why uh, San Francisco developed in the bigger city than the East Bay at first was because uh, San Francisco had that deep water port. You know, it's, we've got, you've got the, the deep water with those strong currents on the, on the west side of the bay. But here in the east side of the bay, we've got more of a shallow, sloping, kind of sandy bottom which was ideal for planting those oyster beds, which really thrive in, in kind of shallow water. But all of those oyster beds were threatened as technological changes in the gold mining industry really took hold. People have this kind of romantic notion of the, of the gold mining era in their minds as, you know, these old guys with like pans, you know, shushing them around in the rivers yeah. and taking out these old nuggets. But uh, Anthony Chabot, who of course Lake Chabot is named after and Chabot College and lots of other things. He invented a uh, process called hydraulic mining, which had a pretty big impact on the entire bay and oysters specifically uh, for our conversation today. So can you tell me a little bit about how hydraulic mining works and why that became such a big problem for everything living in the bay at the time? Yeah, well, like as you said, you know, when you think of gold miners, you think of like, an old prospector stooped by the side of a river with his pan. And I guess at the time, Anthony Chabot was like, this is taking way too long. And also very quickly, I guess all the easy gold was found. So they needed to go after a trickier deposit. So he basically invented this um, method where you just take a high pressured hose, like a canvas hose, and you blast it at a hillside. Um, so these were like the foothills of the Sierras. And it was just like an absolutely incredible amount of hillside and sediment that was eroded away from the Sierras and essentially washed into the bay. Um, because the bay is like the biggest estuary on the West Coast. It drains 40% of all of California through the Sacramento and the San Joaquin Rivers. So hydraulic mining very quickly became like the way to, to gold mine. and it was something like 1.5 billion cubic tons of, of sediment were, was now flowing into the bay. And it was like this slow moving underwater landslide. And then also at this time, um, there was this absolutely huge, huge flood that happened. So hydraulic mining was invented 1853, people start using it, all the sediment starts to come through the watershed. And then uh, in the winter of 1861-1862, the greatest flood in California's history happened. And it was um, 10 feet of water. So 120 inches fell in the course of like 40 days. And it was just an incredible, like, it's hard for me to imagine, but the whole Central Valley became essentially a shallow inland sea. And, uh, you know, we talk about uh, the railroad, Leland Stanford, he, would, he was governor of California, or he became governor at the time, and he had to row to his inauguration in a rowboat through downtown Sacramento. Um, and the thing about oysters is they're uh, a species of the estuary. They, they like water that's not too salty, like seawater, but not fresh either. They like a very specific kind of range of salinity. And this flood of 1862 made the entire San Francisco Bay completely fresh, for, for weeks. Oysters can handle fresh water for like a few days, you know, they can just clamp up, seal their shells, 
and just wait for the water to change. But this was just too much water, too fresh, too cold. It brought all of the silt, so basically also buried all the oyster reefs. You know, it smothered them. So it just, it was kind of this epic, epic uh, event of this like natural weather event plus this new technology of hydraulic mining joining forces to just wipe out every oyster. Right, and a lot of other species too. I know it kind of wiped the slate clean, so to speak, in the bay and really laid the ground for a lot of the uh, invasive non-native species that came to populate the bay yeah. uh, following, following that torrential downpour and, and all, the, all the mining. I want to move on, but before we get away from the gold rush era, there's, there's one more topic I want to raise, which is there's a famous dish called the Hangtown yeah. Fry that has a pretty interesting story behind it. So can you tell people what are the ingredients of this famous dish and uh, how did it get its name? Allegedly. Allegedly, right. So a Hangtown Fry is essentially an omelet. It's made with eggs, oysters, and bacon. And the story goes, the one that you hear most oft repeated, is a prospector struck it rich and came into Placerville, which was known as Hangtown at the time, and wanted the most expensive meal that they could make. He came to the El Dorado Hotel and just basically, I don't know, put a gold nugget on the table and was like, you know, I struck it rich. And um, at the time, it was oysters and eggs and bacon because Placerville was like, uh, you know, it's like 130 miles from San Francisco. So um, it was a lot to transport, you know, delicate eggs and oysters from the coast over land. So, and it just like kind of took off, became super popular. You know, people still make it, they still serve it. Um, but actually, my favorite version of the story is this alternate version where there was a man who was condemned to die by hanging. And as his last meal, he ordered oysters, eggs, and bacon because he knew it would take time for the oysters to come in from the coast and it would like stay his execution for a day. I don't know what one day buys you, but. Well, I just want to say, I'm, I'm, as you're answering this, I'm looking at the comments here in the, in the Zoom group uh, chat thread, and uh, there's, there's some pretty hilarious uh, commentary <laughs> going on here. Uh, I don't think the Hangtown Fry is kosher. Um, but, uh, another, another kind of legendary aspect of the, of the early oyster trade has to do with oyster pirates. Um, of course, you know, with all this prosperity, with all these oyster companies getting rich off selling all these oysters, harvesting this valuable seafood, of course, people came in to, uh, to get their hands on the oysters. So can you tell me a little bit about that? How did the oyster pirates operate and and what do we know about them? Yeah. So the oysters that were being grown in San Francisco started out in the Central Bay. And then around the 1870s, there were like the Central Bay, it's too polluted at this, at this point, you know, every year we lose some oysters to um, the winter when the fresh water comes in. So they had to move their operations to the South Bay um, near like San Mateo, you know, Dumbarton Bridge, that area. And the oyster growers at the time were kind of reluctant to do this because the South Bay has these extensive marshlands and it was gonna be harder to protect their oyster beds because they weren't as accessible from the shore, but they were easily accessible from the water. It was just harder to protect them. They were vulnerable to poachers. So this kind of oyster piracy industry developed um, because there were these abandoned oyster beds in the Central Bay and these vulnerable beds in the South Bay that um, oyster pirates could 
kind of during the day pretend to be harvesting oysters that were like, you know, kind of open for everyone in the Central Bay being like, oh, yeah. Where was that? Was that like around like San Leandro or? This was like Alameda, Alameda, uh, uh-huh. Berkeley, Oakland, that okay. part. Gotcha. And then under cover of darkness at night, they would sail down to like San Mateo and Milbrae. And then they would, um, you know, steal all the oysters from the private beds at night. And they would sail back up to Oakland and sell their stolen oysters at the dock, uh, you know, like at the dawn markets. And um, the people that were buying these oysters didn't really care where the oysters came from. And they could always make the argument that this was an oyster that they just wildly harvested from somewhere else in the bay, that it wasn't, you know, this private oyster. So there was kind of like, it was hard to enforce and be like, you stole this. And be like, no, I didn't. Well, also, I know that in one of Jack London's stories about his days as an oyster pirate, he talks about how they would basically just bribe the cops with oysters yeah. and whiskey to, you know, if the cops were like, what are you doing with those oysters? They'd be like, don't worry about it. You know, here's yeah. a flask of some some hard stuff and take a couple of oysters and uh, why don't you just look the other way? And uh, yeah. apparently the uh, police working, you know, the docks in Oakland were uh, pretty amenable to that, to that agreement. Yeah, a lot of oysters falling off the back of a truck in those days. Exactly, exactly. So before we kind of get to the downfall of the oyster industry, I'd love to get a sense of how widespread, how big it was at its peak. You know, like what year would you say oyster production was at its highest? And like how many acres of oyster beds were in the bay or how many pounds were being produced? What, how, how massive was this industry? Uh, yeah, so basically the late 1800s, so basically the 1890s to like 1905 was kind of the heyday of the oyster industry. I can actually tell you, I'm pretty sure that 1899 was the peak production of um, oysters in San Francisco, and they produced 2.7 million pounds of oyster meat that year. Um, and the I see we have a question about how, how, like how much were oysters going for? Like if you wanted to buy an oyster back then, do you know how much it would cost you? Uh, I'm not quite sure what the like actual dollar value would be, but I do know they were like a working class staple. Right. So they were actually pretty affordable, affordable. Like yeah. they definitely kept um, prices like they didn't get too extravagant because, you know, it was the food that like everyone was eating. Actually, um, there's an author who's written a lot about oysters in San Francisco, Matthew Booker, and he often describes oysters back then as the Big Mac of their era. So it sounds like they were pretty affordable. Yeah, there you go, down by the bay. Um, But you know, when we talk about Hangtown Fry, I think that meal probably cost that miner about $6 in 1850 money, which would be like $200. Today, right. So. Well, of course, the farther away you go from the coast, exactly. okay, probably the more expensive they're getting. Um, but was there something else you were going to say before I jumped in with that question about individual oysters? Oh, just um, how like, you know, it was steadily increasing in the 1800s, basically from 1850 to 1880, mm-hmm. 1890, where it was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and in that you know, around 1899, it was like the number one most valuable fishery in the state of California. So it was just an extremely um, valuable industry. But then it wasn't like too 
long after well, before you get to the downfall i just want to say one more thing that uh we talked about the oyster pirates a second ago and about how they were poaching the oysters right out of the beds in the bay, but the oysters weren't even safe after they get got on land either because Mark Twain, back when he oh, yeah. was a reporter in San Francisco, some of his crime stories that he covered for the local papers were about how um, oyster merchants would keep bags of oysters underground, like in basements, to keep them cool. And so people would climb through windows and get down to those basements and then just hijack those those bags of oysters. And apparently that was that was kind of a common problem for uh, people trying to sell oysters in the bay, how to keep them keep them safe from the uh, the land poachers as well as the oyster pirates. Yeah, I think I always I feel like I read this quote once and it was a Mark Twain quote comparing oyster thieves to like the highest crimes of humanity. Although I've never been able to like find that quote again, but I think it was specific. It was like a specific event around Christmas because I guess oysters are also like a sometimes a traditional Christmas dinner time food. And someone stole oysters from a warehouse, and Mark Twain was just like, "They should just be you know, <laughs> excommunicated from humanity. How dare you!" Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you were starting to get into the downfall now. And yeah. so I'd, I'd love to hear about what happened to this thriving industry because, you know, uh, the hydraulic mining was outlawed in the 1880s, I believe. You know, people took a look around and realized it was just destroying, you know, all the John River farms and, and the bay and, and that couldn't go on much longer. So after there wasn't all this mining waste floating down the rivers and, and polluting the bay, what was the big problem for oysters? Why did, why did the uh, production rates start going down? Oh, yeah, which just to your point about um, hydraulic mining kind of being banned in the 1880s, it really gives a sense like how destructive it must have been for people in the 1880s to be like, this This is like an environmental disaster. We can't have this anymore. Um, but it's funny, you know, the oyster industry was growing and then right after it kind of peaked, it started to decline precipitously. And a lot of it was tied to pollution um, which is definitely true because um, you just had this growing population and now you have all these cities that are getting set up around the bay. And at the time, um, raw sewage was just kind of flowing directly into the water. And that's true for, you know, other cities in America too. And there started to be outbreaks of diseases like typhoid and they started to be linked to people eating oysters that were grown in water that was contaminated with raw sewage so mm, so eating you're saying eating oysters that are marinating and uh, raw sewage isn't very healthy huh no yeah surprisingly <laughs> um not a good idea to eat a filter feeder in that water um but so it was that and then also if you read about um people describing the oyster industry back then they just talk about the eastern oysters failing so the baby seed oysters that they were bringing from the east coast were not like attaching to the beds, they weren't growing. So it was just this kind of double whammy of people kind of like all of a sudden being very wary about wild food or food grown in, you know, like these local bays and estuaries, and then just having a bad yield, you know, like year after year. And it just kind of really spiraled from there. And it's, it's funny, I talk about, you know, the seed oysters failing, uh, Eastern oysters, cannot reproduce on their own in San Francisco. The water is too cold. So so every year they had to import new oysters from the East Coast, which I think also, you know, like if you couldn't get the oysters from the East Coast, you couldn't have the industry here. 
Right. And of course, the same thing is happening on the East Coast, where there's yeah. not only all this raw sewage flowing into, you know, various bays, but also the rise of, you know, canneries, slaughterhouses, oil refineries, smelting plants, etc., that are dumping all yeah. kinds of nasty, toxic industrial waste into the bay. And before we move on with the q and I just want to respond to a, to, a, to a message I just got in the Zoom chat from uh, my friend Lo from the California Center for Natural History, another great organization. And she wants us to give a shout out uh, regarding the Shumi land tax, um, which, which I think is worth mentioning. At the beginning of this conversation, we talked about how we're on Ohlone land. And um, there's a organization co-founded by Karina Gould, who I've interviewed on East Bay yesterday, who is an Ohlone, um, you know, she's descended from the Ohlone people, she's an Ohlone, and um, she runs a great farm out in East Oakland, and her and her uh, colleagues have started an organization, Segorate Land Trust, and what they're essentially doing is collecting funds that people voluntarily donate uh, to them for being on this land to use that money to purchase property so that there is a place for Ohlone people and Ohlone descendants to um, raise crops and uh, do ceremony and just have have a place of their own after being displaced from from this land so unjustly and and for so long. So shout out to the Shumi land tax. I'm sure we can get a um, we can get a link going. Oh, there's the link in the in the quote. Um, let's see. I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about what happened to the oyster beds um, after the oyster industry started going downhill. And I'm just going to jump off screen for one second while you answer this question because someone is pounding on my door right now. So talk about the oyster beds and I'll be right back. So yeah, so all the oyster beds at that time were in the South Bay and um, there were basically two oyster companies that were controlled all the oyster beds of the time, the Morgan Oyster Company and the Moorhan Oyster Company. And uh, quickly after the oysters started to fail, they sold a lot of their lands in the South Bay to other developers. Um, so the Redwood Pacific Cement Company, I think, was one. So a lot of um, the beds where oysters were grown were now dredged for making cement. And as you said earlier, Liam, um, you know, all of this oyster shell became our roads and our bridges and our buildings. So that's what happened to a lot of the beds in the South Bay. Um, they were taken over by other forms of industry, heavy industry, cement production, um, salt ponds in the South Bay. And a lot of that land were, uh, was land owned by the state. So it just reverted back to the state uh, when the oyster companies stop paying their taxes for their leases. So yeah, it just... Gotcha. So I know we're going to open this up for the uh, audience Q&A in a minute here, but just a couple more quick questions. Let's flash forward to, let's say like 20 years ago, around 2000. We were talking about the downfall of the oyster industry, how all this pollution and raw sewage really was kind of wiping out the oyster populations in the Bay. Was there any left? I know that, you know, what you guys are doing now with the Wild Oyster Project is trying to bring uh, oysters back into the Bay. Before you guys and other groups like you started recently in the last, you know, decade or two, what was the state of oysters in the Bay? Were there any left? And, and what kind of oysters were they? Yeah, so basically we've been talking almost exclusively about Eastern oysters from the East Coast because that's what a lot of the industry was. And there were 
as far as I know, there are no Eastern oysters left in the Bay. You know, as soon as they stopped importing seed oysters, they were just gone. But Olympia oysters, San Francisco native oysters had always been here hanging out in the background. They were just, you know, um, uninteresting to the oyster farmers here as a marketable oyster. So back in the 90s, uh, they were essentially like rediscovered. You know, people had kind of forgotten about them. And then they found oysters at the Richmond uh, refinery of all places, like growing around an outflow pipe, like one of the most contaminated parts of the bay. And here were these oysters. And that kind of like kicked off this interest in restoring the native oyster and where else are they in the bay? And so they, they've been here this whole time. They were just in the background, you know, just like, hey, I'm over here, Olympia oysters. Um, but people weren't interested in eating them, so they just weren't interested in them at all. But now we're interested in them not to eat them, but for the ecosystem services they provide. So there have been a lot of cool projects um, that have been happening in the past 20 years, like through different government agencies and universities, kind of like pilot projects for how we would go about um, restoring these guys. And a lot of that is um, figuring out what substrate they like to attach to, which is other oyster shell. Yeah. And now it's just like, how do, where do we go from here? What's the right. best place? Well, I know one of the issues too is that oyster reefs and, and collections of oysters are thought of being more effective than seawalls in terms of uh, mitigating the impacts of you know sea level rise from climate change and uh, slowing down storm surges and things like that too. So it, they're just wonderful for not only filtering water and cleaning up the bay, but actually protecting those of us who, who live on the land and also the creatures that live in the marshes and wetlands as well by preventing what are sure to be rising sea levels in the coming years. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you hear this term a lot bandied about these days, living shorelines. So it is just this kind of movement of shifting away from just gray infrastructure to green infrastructure. So it's like not just building a cement seawall that's going to like need maintenance over time, it's ultimately going to break down and maybe it's not even enough for the kind of levels of sea rise that we're looking at, to incorporating oysters like tidal habitats, wetlands, basically what was our natural protection from waves and storm surges and adding that back, you know, because it's not just protection from the mechanics of waves, it's also habitat for all the species that live here. So it's just, you know, it's going from one, one seawall that does one thing to a complex and diverse habitat that does that and then also does all these other things. Right, right. Uh, Daniel, uh, have you been keeping track of all the questions that are coming in? Should I just be looking at the Zoom window or do you want to prioritize a couple of the best ones? Or, the, you know, what, what do you think are the most interesting? Um, yeah, I have a few questions from the chat. Uh, okay, great, we'll thanks. try and get to as many as we can. Um, I have one for Casey. Do we have any estimates for sedimentation effect versus mercury effect? Uh, on our East Bay oyster population? That's a good question. Um, and yeah, so I see a lot of different kind of estimates of how much sediment came into the bay. You hear uh, three feet a lot, like the, the bottom of the bay rose three feet as a result of the hydraulic mining. Um, but it really depends on what part of the bay you're talking about. Um, it might've been a lot more in the North Bay, closer towards Richmond. 
um, and less in the South Bay. For the East Bay specifically, I'm not so sure, but um, that question did mention mercury. That is a very serious issue. The hydraulic mining we talked about, they also use mercury to kind of find the gold from this, um, basically the slurry that was coming out of um, washing away the hillside. So all that mercury is now in the sediment of our bay. So that's one issue why even though we want to restore oysters, we don't want to eat those oysters essentially yet because there's so much legacy pollution in the bay, these contaminants like mercury in the sediment that are uh, so hard to deal with that unfortunately eating any sort of filter feeder in the bay is not a good idea right now. But the more we work to combat that pollution to remediate all these toxins and contaminants, the more future generations could possibly have a bay that they can they can eat the shellfish out of. That's great. There's kind of a follow-up from Alice Frieda uh, asking about sort of on that mercury and population level, what can we do as individuals to help bring back an oyster population in the bay? Yeah, that's a that's another great question. So the Wild Oyster Project is a community-based organization. We're a local nonprofit. We're a part of Earth Island Institute. So we're all about getting people involved in the work of oyster restoration. So our approach to oyster restoration is like for the community by the community. So we use volunteers for all the work that we do and that we want to do. So that's volunteering to collect shell from a restaurant and bring it to one of our shell mounds or to make um, structures that we put in the water or to monitor the structures that we put into the water for oyster recruitment um, and water quality. So if people are interested in what they can do to help restore oysters, I would say get on the Wild Oyster Project website, wildoysters.org. We have a volunteer contact page and just get in contact with us. Um, should we should we be throwing our used oyster shells into the bay? Like if you're having a little picnic down at you know Middle Shoreline Harbor Park and you and you brought a couple oysters, when you're done with them, should you just be whipping them into the bay, or is that uh, from the pond? Whipping them into the bay, like <laughs> um, I'm glad you asked that. The short answer is no. Um, uh, we have a whole process around shell recycling because because we're collecting shells from restaurants or oyster farms and they've been handled by people, there's a possibility that they contain uh, pathogens that we don't want to introduce into the water. So when we collect shells from restaurants, we take them to one of our shell mounds. And you have one in Alameda, right? Yes, we have one in Alameda at Plowshares Nursery, which is a great nursery, and also one um, in Bayview Hunters Point of San Francisco at Bay Natives Nursery, which is right next to Parents Head Park, which is a really cool park. And we let those shells kind of cure in the open air for two to three years, um, just to make sure that it's only the shell that is gonna be introduced back into the water. Oh, and speaking of uh, Daniel's reference earlier to chickens, you've got some chickens that roam around picking those shells clean, right? Yeah, so both Plowshares Nursery and Bay Natives have a chicken population, so they, they really, you know, they really help us out. Um, we spread the oyster shells um, in what we call the chicken lounge. And it's just kind of a little corral where the chickens can pick off all the pieces of oyster meat that are still on the shell when we come pick them up from restaurants. Um, and a lot of the restaurants where we pick up 
depending on if the customer shucked it or they shucked it, there's a fair amount of meat still on the shell and it can be a very, a very stinky process. So the chickens are really good at picking out all those little fleshy bits and leaving just the shells. So chickens are a great uh, oyster supporter in that way. All right, that's going to do it for my interview with Casey Harper from the Wild Oyster Project. Thanks again to Creative Mornings Oakland, Tiny Oak Media, and everyone else who made that virtual event possible. I'll post links to all those organizations in my show notes on uh, eastbayyesterday.com if you want to learn more. And I should add that a lot of my uh, oyster knowledge came from various articles in Bay Nature magazine, one of my favorite local publications, and also by the book Down by the Bay by Matthew Morse Booker. I also want to give big shout outs to California Humanities and the city of Oakland. I recently received an emergency grant from Cal Humanities and an artist grant from Oakland's cultural funding program. And I'm very, very grateful for that support. Uh, if you want to support the show, even if it's just, you know, a few bucks a month, you can find my donate link at eastbayyesterday.com. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you like this episode, please share it on the platform of your choice. Uh, you can subscribe to the show on Spotify, pretty much all the major podcast apps. Music for this episode came from local producer Justin Lee. Thank you, Justin. And uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday Q&A. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Stay safe out there.